Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very uh, exciting founder that is joining us. You know, as a founder that uh, really understands both sides of the table. Uh, he has been a founder before. He's a founder now because a founder always a founder, but now he's definitely uh, executing on the investment side of things. So again, you know, his journey is quite inspiring and I can't wait, you know, for, for this episode, which is going to be quite exciting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Matias Serebritsky. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in Argentina. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? I had an amazing time growing up in Argentina. So I was born and raised in Argentina. I spent you know, most of my 20s in Argentina. I moved here to, to the U.S. Um, in, my, in my late 20s. Uh, life was really good and it's still really good. I ended up living a lot uh, by chance. Not, it wasn't very well thought in the sense of I had a job opportunity to move here to San Francisco. And at that time, I thought it would be a six month or a year kind of a move. And then I would go back to my great life in Argentina. But Life had a different plans for me. So then, obviously, you know, like life had different plans for you. But obviously, you know, moving to the U.S., you know, it's a whole different bogey, you know, than uh, being there in, in Buenos Aires. I'm sure that you miss the asados, you know, and all that good stuff that you guys have there, no? And alfajores. Yeah, I love alfajores there. But how does the idea of coming to the U.S., you know, come into the picture? At what point, you know, did that come into the radar as a possibility? Well, I was working in Argentina for a tech company, leading our sales and marketing efforts for the Southern Cone. So Argentina, Brazil, Chile, um, Uruguay, Paraguay, and many of those countries. And uh, I got an offer to move to our headquarters here in San Mateo and um, decided to take a chance, moved and I would say after a couple of months of being here in the San Francisco Bay Area, I got infected by the entrepreneurial virus. So very quickly saw that 
every friend that I was making and everyone around me was in one way or another involved in startups. And that energy and the type of dynamism that startups have uh, were contagious. And so after a few months of being here and working for this very, very large tech company, I decided that I would start my own company. And, and that was the, let's say, kernel for what I'm doing now. So how did you go about coming up with the right idea to resign and and to take that leap of faith, how was that journey like? Well, I moved with my then girlfriend. Now she's my wife, and we have a baby together. And um, she she has an interesting career path. She's a lawyer uh, who then did an MBA, who then went back to culinary school and became a chef. And in Argentina, she had her own catering company. And when we moved here, she couldn't find a job that was exciting. Basically, she had to go back to chopping tomatoes at the back of a kitchen and working weekends and night shifts. And so I started thinking, is there any other alternative for a chef, someone that is really an artist, to do work that's more engaging, more creative? And and that kind of like idea or that question was what led to the company I started, which is called Cook Unity. And so Cook Unity is basically a chef, a marketplace chef. So any chef can come into the platform, post their meals, their creations, their art, and we take care of everything else. So we take care of providing the ingredients and providing the delivery infrastructure. So those meals get in the hands of folks that want to eat healthy food, delicious food, and maybe don't have the time or the knowledge to cook those meals. So then obviously, you know, like you, you came up with the concept. So what were the, what was the execution on the early days like with this? Oh my gosh. So anyone that is in a food business will understand that it's operationally a nightmare. So you you basically go to war every day because there, there's no kind of like delaying things every day you need to deliver. So number one, we were testing a fairly new model. I would argue a very, very innovative model of building this, which was in many ways industrializing and scaling the concept of, you know, home-cooked meals, the concept of even a restaurant, right? And so we need to, we had to figure out what that looks like from a production perspective, what that looks like from an ingredient sourcing perspective, and also from a logistical perspective, right? How to do those meals. And at that time, we were only operating in New York. So so in one way, operating a food business, really, really hard from an operational perspective. Then adding on top of that, a model that was very innovative, still is very innovative. So, you know, figuring that out. And we needed a significant amount of money to get started and convincing investors that they should bet on a physical business. Basically, it's a tech-enabled business, but ultimately, it's more about atoms than bits. And convincing investors about that was really, really challenging at that time. Fast forward to 2023, and 
investors are seeing that there are a lot of opportunities in in the physical world as well, you know, from space tech to even, you know, if we think of Uber or Airbnb, all these companies operate in the physical world. But at that time, that was fairly unproven. So what all this meant is that um, we, it, it really, uh, we really struggled to raise money and we were kind of living paycheck by paycheck or month uh, by month, not knowing if we would survive. But in the meantime, we were growing considerably. And so we had all these indicators that things were good and what we wanted to do made sense. But those early days or early years, I would argue, were extremely hard and stressful until we found product market fit. I would argue that even when, when we found product market fit, it was still hard because it took a while for the company to get cash flow positive. And, and just for the people that, that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of the company? How was the company ultimately making money? Well, so with this idea of empower, empowering independent chefs, we realized that we had to gave them all the tools to do this. So the business model ended up being uh, one where we have commercial kitchens. The chefs come to our commercial kitchens. We take care of sourcing the ingredients for them. They cook their meals. We post them to the platform. And then we deliver those meals once a week. So the meals are delivered refrigerated. And many of the meals are thawed or produced in a way that they hold very well in the fridge until they're heated. And so now we rely on more of a commercial logistical companies to take care of those deliveries. But in the early days, we were actually taking care of those deliveries because we were only operating in New York. Today, we're operating in most of the U.S. So you came from Argentina to the U.S., you knew no one. So tell us about the power of networks, because in the end you were alluding to raising money and getting in front of investors. So how did you go about building your network? You're absolutely right. When I came here, I studied in Argentina, so I didn't have kind of like the typical network that maybe some immigrants would have when they go to school in the U.S., one of the things that we realized is that we had to get plugged into the venture ecosystem. And that means investors. That also means uh, advisors, early employees. And for us, the best way to do it was to apply for to a, a few accelerators, startup accelerators. And we ended up getting accepted in a really good one. It's called AngelPad. AngelPad incubated companies like Postmates, Bungle, and a few other unicorns. Um, at that time, we didn't realize how instrumental and important that decision would be. Number one, we learned a lot through going uh, through the uh, program, but also we met fantastic people. Even today, my co-founder at the fund I'm currently running, I met him there at AngelPad as well. So the power of network just changed everything for us. And I think when, when I talk to entrepreneurs today that may not have those connections, I always advise them that that is one of the first things to do. Even before thinking about distribution or something else, it's like, okay, how are you getting embedded in the ecosystem that you want to operate in? And, uh, you know, just for the listeners, you know, founder of AngelPad, founder of Bungle, they've all been on the podcast, so uh, go check their episodes. So I guess, uh, you know, the other thing here to, to ask you is, you know, for, for the company, I mean, the company obviously 
you know, has been and has done pretty well. So far, the company has raised to date how much money? Community, well, I, I would have to get back to you on that one because we raised even more money after I transitioned out of the company. So I don't have the exact number, but it's in but the... Probably it, over 100 million, no? Exactly. I was going to say that it's in the hundreds of millions. That's incredible. So, so, so how did you like develop early those relationships with investors? How were you, obviously, you know, like you use the accelerator program to really accelerate the relationship building in the venture world. But what was that journey like of getting in front of investors? Here you are, a foreigner, you know, too, with the accent, you know, just like me, you know, I know it's not easy, you know, I've done that too. So, so how did you go about that? Because it's, it's quite uh, intimidating. Well, I would say that the validation of having gone through AngelPad, which is a fairly small accelerator in the sense of they don't take many companies. So the the stamp of approval from AngelPad and the founders there was instrumental for them getting uh, connected with investors. And we relied on warm introductions. Again, if maybe someone has the the in the resume that they went to Harvard Business School or Stanford or um, you know any of those schools, you may be able to put something like that. Or even if you know the the previous experiences were around building a successful company or working for a hyperscale company, those things help you bypass the need for warm introductions. We didn't have those things. So we really relied on getting an angel investor, you know, a number of angel investors on board, first getting the accelerator, then angel investors, and then those angel investors introducing us to larger firms. That's incredible. And, and, and then like when you meet with someone, like how are you able to really get or use them as a bridge to get to where you want to be? I mean, how is that strategy? Because it's like a, it sounds like a two-step approach to get to where you want to be or in front of who you want to be in front of. Well, yes, yeah, more like a 10-step approach uh, because yeah. we, had to, we, we had to go through so many levels or layers in order to you know, raise from institutional investors later. But um, ultimately, I think that fundraising and so many other aspects of company building are very much related to selling. And uh, there's a quote that I really like from Zig Ziglar, which says that selling is the transference of emotion from one person to the other one. So that's what I focused early on in my, in my entrepreneurial journeys. Okay, this is something that I'm genuinely interested in. I'm passionate about this. This is not what I'm doing to maximize the amount of money that I make. This is actually my life's purpose and desire. And so I still today focus on how can I convey that emotion to the person that's in front of me? And that may be an investor, that might be a potential employee, and that may even be a customer. For us, our customers are the companies that we invest in, right? And so in, in that sense, what what really worked is when people understood the passion we had for this and that that passion was backed by data and numbers and experience and facts. It wasn't uh, just delusional or, and to put it differently, we had validated our assumptions. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. 
And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So in your case, you know, uh, ultimately, you decided to transition out. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons why I transitioned out. The first one is that we, the company had gotten to a place that it was in uh, equilibrium in the sense of we had a incredible um, executive team. And I realized that what I enjoyed the most was that process of going from zero to one, those early stages in the company. So after a few years of hyperscale, but also hyper work and hyper stress, I decided that I was ready for my next adventure. So that's that's one reason or one part of the story. The other part of the story is that at that time, I was working 14, 15, 16 hours a day, six days a week, sometimes even seven week, uh, days a week. And um, I ended up burning out. It was a really, really challenging time in my life. Uh, and the, all those years of kind of like uncertainty around not knowing if the company would survive, if we would be able to pay employees, took a toll on me. And so when I considered that the company was in a better place and had great chances of survival, I decided to step aside and prioritize my own self-care and mental health before exploring my next adventure. So the next adventure was NVIDIA. And there, you know, you really got involved with investing in startups and and really more involved on the on the other side of the table. And eventually, you know, that was the um, the the bridge or the immediate step that needed to happen, you know, for you to um, go into the other side of the table and become a VC. You know, now when it comes to finding different modalities and and things, you know, for the mental being, you know, how was that? You know, because that that ultimately, you know, like was what made you resign and 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 go after this. So, I guess why was the mental being so important to you at what point you know perhaps you experience a breakdown where you know you realize the importance of having you know uh the the, the mental state you know in shape you know uh and, and 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 how did that all you know come together for you to to get going with what you're doing you know right now you know with Simon adventures so when i left cook unity 
as I mentioned, I was going through my own mental health journey, and I found tremendous healing in some of these modalities that were not really the standard of care for mental health. Um, and as they say, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. That's, that's what I realized. There are very effective tools that really are not being used by the mental health establishment. So, so that was kind of like, you know, one of the, the initial kernels of it. It was my own experience and the realization that the, uh, these tools that I needed were not what uh, most people had access to. And I had a position of privilege because I had the resources and time to explore this. So, so that's my, more like the personal story. But the other part that it, quickly became apparent to me is that we are in a mental health crisis. This is a, an epidemic, and it's an existential threat for us as a civilization. And when you think of other existential threats, like the climate change, for example, things are getting better. And we have substantial kind of uh, data that show that we are able to solve this issue. In mental health, that's unfortunately not happening yet. One in three Americans will suffer from a mental health disorder, uh, mostly either clinical depression or anxiety in their lives. And the numbers are getting worse and worse. You see like, teenagers and the, the percentages are even higher for mental health disorders. So, so it was my own experience and journey within mental health, but also realizing that this is the single biggest problem I can focus my resources and knowledge into solving. And when there's a personal passion and a sense of purpose in the world, I think that's when the magic happens. So now, as part of Simon, uh, you guys, I mean, and you have invested 15 million through SPVs, you know, you did some angel investments, and then now fund one that was 16 million. So there's probably a bunch of people that are listening to, that are wondering about how to get into the world of VC or how to start your own VC. How is that transition like? Because, you know, as they say, raising for a first time fund is, is almost impossible nowadays. So it sounds like you did it, you know, the right way, step by step, you know, all the way to, to really getting to fund one and, and beyond. No? So how is that journey like for you of becoming a VC? Well, you, you nailed it. And this goes back to the first part of our conversation of taking this two-step or multi-step tiered approach. Um, I started by angel investing in companies and kind of building my own network and deal flow capacities. And that led to leading SPVs where I wasn't just investing my own money, but I was also pulling money from other investors. And that helped us, and by us, I mean the, the Simon team, build a track record, prove that the market that we were investing in was an interesting market, and also build relationships with LPs. And this part about proving that it's an interesting market, it's related to the fact that many times when I speak with folks that may not be that familiar with the space, they, the, the first thing they'll say is, oh, isn't that too small, mental health as an investable field. And we discussed a little bit the uh, statistics and data around how big the problem is from a numbers perspective or from a population perspective. But mental health is the largest item 
or budget item within healthcare, which in the U.S. is the largest budget item in the GDP. So what, what we showed to LPs and investors is that not only we have this very, very strong position within mental health, but mental health is a gigantic market that will deliver and, and has delivered venture style or venture type of returns. So talk to us about, you know, the, 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 the way that you guys have developed your investment thesis. How do you think about, you know, investing in companies and, and what are those checkboxes that need to be met? Well, the, the first thing I'll say is that most of that comes from my own passion and interests within mental health. When I was investing at NVIDIA, we were investing in really, really hard technical problems. So usually these were either scientific or engineer kind of challenges. And the risks that we were underwriting were around the technical challenges and not so much the market. To put it differently, it's really, really challenging to build these things. But if these things get built, there will be a market for it. And so that experience at NVIDIA and seeing the power of taking technical risks versus market risks were uh, what influenced our thesis uh, around mental health today. So we strongly believe that the solutions that will make treatments cheaper, more effective, more widespread, safer, will come from breakthrough technologies. And what that means is that at Simon Ventures, we invest in frontier mental health technologies. And usually these technologies are what I call entrepreneurial science. So these technologies are things that come out of academia or other places where there's deep research in science. And we help those scientists figure out how to commercialize and how to go from science to startup. So bridging the gap between intuition and data. Tell us about this. When I went through my own kind of mental health exploration, some of the modalities that I explored were not really accepted by science yet. To put it differently, they were not in the Overton window. They were not at the center of the Overton window, but they were very, very helpful for me. So what I realized is that in order for for us to invest in those things, we had to prove that those things actually were backed by science. And so the way I think about it is that many of the areas that uh, we invest in, what we are actually doing is reverse engineering how they work. So it's we're bridging the intuition or those kind of uh, anecdotes that something work into bringing that data and science that will back this. What are some examples of the areas that I'm mentioning? Well, um, a very interesting one are psychedelic therapeutics or psychedelic drugs. Psychedelic drugs in the have been used for millennia. So Amazonian folks um, and indigenous tribes all over the world have been working with psychedelic plants for a long time. In the 50s and 60s, there were also many, many explorations around this. But until the uh, 2010s, I would say the um, 10 years ago, there wasn't actually rigorous data or research that was showing that these medicines could actually be helpful for the treatment of mental health disorders like anxiety, depression, PTSD. And so all of a sudden, scientists started to run what's called randomized controlled clinical trials and uh, show that 
these medicines are actually safe and effective for the treatment of mental health disorders. So that is an example of bridging intuition and data where something that um, it seems like it works, but it's not accepted by the scientific community, then you know, comes as, as part of the establishment and becomes a, the standard of care. There are other examples of this, like food as medicine. That's, a, that's one that it's more new for us and we're still exploring. But the idea that you can treat mental health disorders, severe mental health disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar with different dietary interventions is quite a revolutionary idea. And the idea that you could even taper off medications by, in a, in a very controlled way, having a certain diet, uh, it's still not really accepted by most folks. And so, so that's, for example, an area that we're exploring now and we're very interested in backing and supporting entrepreneurs building solutions. So... If you were to go to sleep tonight, Matias, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Simon is fully realized, what does that world look like? It's a world where everyone that's going through a challenging life experience, being a mental health experience or any other type of physical challenge, has safe, effective, and accessible tools to find healing. That's amazing. That's really unbelievable. I um I find this really really incredible, Matthias. Now now we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where you were perhaps now in San Francisco, having recently moved from Argentina, and you were now starting to think that the corporate is not your thing, that maybe, you know, you got to launch something of your own and really be part of the venture world. And you have the opportunity of whispering to your younger self. And you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, now that you have seen, you know, the side of that venture world from the two sides of the table? The advice that I would give my younger self is, number one, Jump head first. Just, just go for it. Don't doubt yourself and embrace the mystery of what you're doing and don't hold back at all. Just give it all. And in the process of giving it all, enjoy what you're doing. It's not about where you're going to get, but it's about the process of doing it by itself. Wow. So, so Matias, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? My email is matthias at simed.ventures. I always read and try to reply to every email that's actually personalized, and it's something that has to do with me. And then you can find me on Twitter at matisere, so M-A-T-I-S-E-R-E. I'm pretty active there, and, and we're just active on LinkedIn, Twitter, we have a newsletter as well. We have a podcast that's called Business Trip, which is a podcast about frontier mental health. And that is another way that folks can connect with me and learn more about what we do. Amazing. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. Great questions. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, 
share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.